And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drums? Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie, and we're here to take you on an intersectional feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read it but you can't forget, we've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious talking about your new favorite reads. Hello, and welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Maggie. I am Harmony. Usually, Maggie says welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club, and I stole her line. Yeah, and you know what? It really took me a second to not say I'm Harmony again. I, I think it's just because that's like the order things typically go in is it's I'm Rebel. Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. I'm Maggie. That like I you're really giving me that like deep level of existential crisis, you know. That's what this book club is all about. If you're not questioning your reasoning for being here on Earth. And for why things happen the way they happen, then you're doing it wrong. Yeah, if you too don't think that you're <laughs> a harmony, then, <laughs> then I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> That's the secret to this whole thing. I'm just brainwashing everyone to think and be like me. Yeah, I mean, after seven years of friendship, I can confirm that this is the goal. <laughs> so what are we talking about today, Maggie? We are talking about Parable of the Talents by Octavia E. Butler probably collectively one of our favorite authors yes yes she is I've only read five works of hers I've only read six well yeah you read Kindred so you you've surpassed me with the Kindred I keep recommending Kindred to people though I recommended Octavia Butler I just went away for a week and I met a lot of new people and I was like you guys should all read Octavia Butler. I recommended it to my grandma, I recommended it to my mom, I recommended it to my brother's roommate and his girlfriend. It's a thing. Everyone should read Octavia Butler. I my favorite though is when you're on Instagram and you're recommending Kindred because I like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that did happen. So, uh what's this book about, Maggie? So this book is the follow-up to the events of Parable of the Sour by Octavia Butler. So this book follows um, Olamina in 2020, uh, 2032. 30. And they've kind of established Acorn as a, as a commune and as their own like little society. And so the first half of the book is sort of about them trying to grow, get more resources, kind of get more followers and become stronger and uh, as a community, essentially. And then Olamina's brother Marcus comes back into the picture. He was alive this whole time. Dun, dun, dun. There's drama there. And then, unfortunately, the camp is taken over. Um and essentially turned into a very brutal concentration camp, which Olamina and the rest of Earthseed have to survive uh, if they can. Not all of them do. They take Lauren's baby, Asha, away from her, which Asha is the name that she goes by the entire time, but wasn't the name that Lauren gave her. And then the second half of the book is really about the like rebuilding of Earthseed after this camp is destroyed. But this entire book is narrated from Asha's perspective as she's essentially 
figuring out who her parents actually are because she knows that she's been adopted and trying to understand Olamina and her choices and Earthseed as sort of almost a scorned daughter figure. So the tone of this book for that reason is really different than Sour. Yeah, it is. We still get Lauren's perspective through journal entries. And we actually get a little bit of, we get Bankle's perspective too, through some of his journal entries. And a little bit of Marcus as well. And a little bit of Marcus as well. But it is different because we start the book with a prologue of, because Ash is essentially going through and like conducting research on her family's history. Because as you find out later in the book, Asha, as Maggie mentioned before, was stolen from Lauren. And she was actually raised by a Christian family and, you know, suddenly finds out she's adopted. And she didn't really know that much about her mother. But yeah, the tone, as Maggie mentioned before, like right from the get-go is much, much different. Because Asha's just kind of trying to like put together the pieces. And you can tell almost right away that she doesn't, she recognizes that her mother was an important person and a very big figure, but there is a lot of secret resentment there or not. So I don't know. It's not even thinly veiled. There's just a lot of resentment there. She feels like her mother chose Earthseed over her. Yeah, yeah essentially. <laughs> no, the, like that's totally true. She does feel like her mother chose Earthseed over her, which is kind of difficult to contend with throughout the book, I would say. Because you follow, so like Asha is essentially annotating at the beginning of end and end of every chapter, sort of her feelings on Lauren's journal entries, but you are following Olamina's journal entries throughout and you see the struggle she went through when her baby, who she named Laurel, was taken from her and how much time she spent fighting to get not just her child, but all of the children who were stolen from them back and stuff. So I found, and of course, this is probably also because the first book is entirely from Olamina's perspective, but I found Asha a very difficult character to, to, to like. I could empathize with her and I could empathize why she felt the way she did. But for me, she was a really difficult narrator to like actually connect with. I agree entirely. I kept on waiting for the other shoe to drop and for Lauren to turn into like this evil person. And as we discussed on the first episode, she is problematic. Like she's manipulative. She is starting a cult. But yeah, I had the same reaction. Like there was nothing that she did that really warranted, I I felt this resentment, but it's not my experience. And I even texted Maggie after I read this book and was like, I kind of hate Asha. I also hate Marcus. Like what dicks? It felt weird to me because, I mean, we are a feminist podcast, right? So like we are reading this, we're trying to read this through a feminist lens. And it felt weird to me how much she blamed her mother and never really her father or never Marcus, who really fucked her over by refusing to tell Lauren. Marcus finds out that Ash has been adopted and he knows where she is. And then he never tells his sister and his sister has asked her to, him to he eventually finds her circumstantially when she's like grown, when she's 18 and they develop a, you know, a uncle relationship, like some sort of familial relationship. But yeah, he never fucking tells her and he just lets her live this. Her childhood was okay, but it like, it had problems. She was molested her entire childhood and her mother constantly was comparing her to another daughter. Like she, her parents didn't really 
love her, it seemed, because she was a heathen child. Yeah, and then on top of that, when Marcus and Asha reconnect, Marcus, he doesn't, like, lie to her entirely, but he lies by omission, and he lets Asha think that Lauren's dead the entire time. And then Mm -hmm. at the end, at the end, the, like, culminating scene is when Asha, you know, finds out that Lauren's not dead, and she goes to meet her mother, who is, you know, an old woman by this time. Like, she's in her 70s or 80s, and she's still, like, the head of Earthseed. And it's, like, this really emotional scene for Lauren, because she's finally, like, oh my god, my child, right? And, like, Asha is, to a certain extent, understandably, sort of, like, what the fuck is happening? You know? Which I I think is is a fair reaction. But there's just so much that Marcus keeps there's so much like playing god that marcus does in this book as his like quest to become a priest and to become like his father essentially and he never really gets any sort of reckoning because of it because to me from a writing perspective i feel like the ending of this book felt very rushed um oh really so much stuff happens at the end that i feel like we weren't like the the plot twists were just coming so fucking fast and furious for me that like we really weren't able to marinate in a lot of it or see any consequences and on the one Mm -hmm. hand it's because most of the drama happens when lauren's young and laurel is like a baby who has just been taken away and stuff but on the other hand then we cover like (laughs) you know 20 years 30 years worth of time in like less than a hundred pages and so the consequences of these actions that happened so long ago just never come to fruition and I feel like from a feminist reading especially for Marcus for me it would have been a more satisfying read if it was maybe like 50 pages 100 pages longer and we got a little bit more time to marinate with all these changes and maybe saw some backlash for all of these actions that you know, we live through throughout the book, but actually happened, you know, 20, 25 years ago. Yeah, I agree. You mentioned earlier in our first episode on um, the parable books that Butler had intended to make this like a four part series or something and didn't like the message she was giving. So just decided to stop. And I personally found talents more compelling than Sour's. But I I would have liked, like, I don't know. I'm wondering what this message was. My issue with the motherhood thing is that we, like, as a society and from from a feminist reading, we put so much weight onto mother's roles. And we do, I don't know if you felt this, Maggie, but since you're my friend, and I'm sure listeners maybe have gotten a sense for this, you know, I've interviewed my mother before. Like, I, as a teenager, had a big reckoning of, like, my mother is a superhero. And I still kind of struggle with this. Like, my mother is a superhero, but my mother can also be problematic, right? And I think all parents, all kids, I think everyone has this to a certain extent. But I think it's especially big when it's your mother, because your mother, for a variety of reasons, like, is your first contact and, and for most people, not for everybody, but like in a societal context, the mother is the caregiver giver and the primary caregiver. And a part of what really frustrated me with this story and with Asha and Marcus and even Lauren is that like no one really, Lauren is mad at Marcus, but like she never really like, she never gives him that reckoning, even though he really deserves it. And Asha never gives him that reckoning. Like they both just decide to forgive him. And part of it is because he's pretty and he's a man like he's the golden boy and that just 
oh, it frustrates me so much. I don't know. <laughs> like, that is kind of what we do as a society. We just like, we forgive men. We forgive fathers. It's okay. If you show up, then you're fine. There's like hands off. You're good yeah. dad. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that this issue is also complicated because of the fact that Bank Hole is killed pretty quickly in the novel. Um, when the hostile takeover of Acorn happens, Bank Hole doesn't survive, which fucks Lauren up immensely um, for obvious reasons, but also does give him an out in Ash's mind because the entire first hundred pages of this book is essentially Bank Hole being like, essentially telling Lauren like, I love you. I love Earthseed, but I feel like we've kind of taken this as far as we can safely go. And I feel like we need to like go live a more traditional lifestyle now. And like, I want to take you and have you be a teacher in this town because I've been offered a really good doctor position and like we can raise our baby and we can have a more traditional family. And Lauren doesn't agree to that. And they eventually have a conversation where Van Cole like agrees essentially that he's not being fair and not listening and like they talk it out and it's a like a, a communicative relationship but you can very much tell from asha's like notes and addendums that like the fact that bank cole was the one that was pushing that and then you know dies so he can't be held accountable for anything that happens afterwards really absolves him of a lot of sin in her mind and paints lauren in an even worse light where it seems to Asha like she didn't even like want her and things like that. And it's just very, she's very unfairly vilified where while a lot of the male characters in this book are viewed as being the saviors, which is really interesting because for the most part, Olamina is the savior. She's the one who rescues Marcus by being smart. She rescues so many children first children that they didn't know then the children of their community who she was able to find some of even if it wasn't asha who she was able to find and like reunite with their families um she saves marcus like she really is the hero in many ways but because she failed her daughter essentially in asha's perspective the men get absolved of all of this and Lauren is just sort of painted. I wouldn't say as a villain necessarily, but she's not painted in a fair a light, hero. I think. I think in the first book, we really see Lauren as like a pretty typical hero because it's from her perspective. And so she's like, she's so righteous and she knows what she's doing. And as we broke down last episode, some of the problematic things she did because it's from her own perspective, you had to pick apart a little bit more and kind of find under the context that she was giving. And then switching to this one, it was almost like the opposite thing, where like the narrator was still almost unreliable because she just felt so negatively toward Olamina that like <laughs> there was still, a, you had to pick it apart in a different way. I agree with you entirely. And I think that Asha, in some points, is fair. Like, she recognizes, she says at one point, it's a good thing that my mother's religion was changed. But yeah, the bitterness. And she, even when she meets Olamina, I think that her response is like, like, I don't think her response to that is wrong. Like, she goes to meet her mother. She recognizes that she really likes her mom, but she's scared of liking her mom. And that, I think, is the important, like, push and pull to what we as adults sometimes feel for our parents in general. This idea of, like, you raised me and were a superhero and did everything versus, like, oh, you're a real grown-up and you do problematic shit. 
because she she doesn't want to be like taken in by her mother or the cult. And I also think too, because her mom wasn't in her life, like I think that is a fair response to be like, I don't know if I want to like touch you. I don't know if I'm ready for us to like rekindle stuff. I think in this, I think in some ways talents and why I liked it more was because it was more expansive. It did show multiple perspectives versus just Lauren's, which was problematic because it was one person's perspective and she was so righteous. So I think in some ways, like this book as a whole gives us a better vision of what is truly going on. But yeah, that resentment, I just can't get over the resentment. It's unfair. Yeah, I think what is difficult for me is just like, even to the last pages of this novel, Astra just can't separate herself from Marcus. I'm going to read a little bit if that's okay. So we should clarify, Olamina does not forgive Marcus. (laughs) It's just that you find that out in the last three pages of the book. So for me, it doesn't feel like much of a reckoning. But this this is uh, parts from page 402 and 403. My mother would not see him. He came to me almost in tears because he had tried to see her and she had refused. He tried several more times and over and over again, she sent people out to tell him to go away. I went back home with him. I was angry with him, but even angrier with her somehow. I loved him more than I'd ever loved anyone, no matter what he had done, and she was hurting him. I didn't know whether I would ever see her again. I didn't know whether I should. I didn't even know whether I wanted to. And then skipping down a couple of paragraphs. All she did, she did for Earthseed. I did see her again occasionally, but Earthseed was her first child and in some ways her only child. They, in particular, were her family. All Earthseed was her family. We never really were, Uncle Mark and I. She never really needed us, so we didn't let ourselves need her. Yeah, so she didn't forgive him for that initial thing, but she did forgive him in the beginning when he was a dick and, like, went off and joined, like, the Christian Brotherhood or whatever the fuck it is, like, these these Nazis. Yeah, it's true. She forgives him in the beginning. It's just when she finds out that he kept, and by she, I mean Olamina at this point, it's just when she finds out that Marcus knew where Asha was the entire time that, like, that was almost the straw that broke the camel's back, where she was just like, yeah, no, I can't. <laughs> And I think that passage gets really like what uh, what is so problematic about this viewpoint towards Lauren. It's the fact that she doesn't need them. She tries, but because she is who she is, she keeps going no matter what falls to her. Like she loves them. And that's the thing. Like you shouldn't need somebody when you when you love them. Like none of us. I don't know. That's not a healthy relationship necessarily to need somebody. I think, though, that there's something to be said about the fact though that like when it comes to a traditional mother and child relationship which is what Olamina and Laurel would have initially had like for Mm -hmm. a long time the children the child does physically need the mother and or at the very least a parental figure who will like feed and nurture them which I think Olamina was it, it was set up that she was going to be right like she was breastfeeding she was doing all of that she was really like in charge of Laurel's caregiving and then that was all ripped away from her so I feel like there is something there to say that like in familial relationships when Asha was a child she really needed that figure because she didn't get it from her adopted family and I think that there's a lot of tension there that you see throughout the novel within Asha herself kind of trying to understand how to let go of needing people 
as an adult when she didn't get what she needed as a child. That's fair. And there is a point too, like kind of towards the end where you're saying everything jumps around where Lauren's focus does become different than just looking for Laurel. Cause there was a, there's a while where she's like just looking for Laurel and Asha really seems to resent that, that earth seed still exists in her mother's mind, that there's still room for it. And that there is a point where, even though I don't know that I would do anything different in Lauren's position, and I don't know if there was anything different she could have done, it really did seem like she was trying to exhaust everything. There is a point where she moves on with her life. And I think that is the big resentment. Yeah, she gives up hope. Because she's just done so much. And I think there's also a a point where she finds out that she has most likely been adopted and like is living with a family and is safe. And also because of all of this, all of those records are sealed and like she still tries to look for a while, but like there's a point where she, after years of searching, Mm -hmm. that she comes back to herself and is, I'm not going to stop, but I can't spend my the entire rest of my life just dedicated to an impossible task almost, you know? Like even Marcus, when he finds asha finds her by accident asha finds him by accident so like well he did find her though he looked into the records and saw that she was adopted by a quote good christian family he could have reached out to her before she was 18 yeah that is also true that is also true but yeah there's just like this resentment that like because she was actually out there Asha, like, Asha was, laurel was actually out there and like lauren stopped looking like that's the wound that never gets healed and like you see that color i think all of lauren's other actions prior to that point and after to that point in ash's narration yeah do we want to talk about marcus as a figure because i think that we've already kind of touched a little bit on his toxic masculinity but that was another really big theme throughout this book that was frustrating <sighs> yeah i really didn't like marcus in this novel he very much just had this like daddy complex essentially that Mm -hmm. meant he had to follow in his father's footsteps and he had to sort of like be the man of the house almost and like do things and it's difficult at the beginning because you want to really empathize with him and the literal slavery and torture that he goes through because what happens to Marcus you come to find out is that he's essentially kidnapped the rest of his siblings his mother like they're they're dead lauren was right about that but marcus escapes he gets kidnapped uh and he's kept in a shock collar essentially that makes escape literally impossible the only reason he's able to leave is because lauren is out looking for other people and while she's talking to a slave trader essentially she sees her brother there and is able to keep her cool enough to like bargain for him Mm. and so you really empathize with his plight i think and the fact that he's like this damaged and fucked up dude who's to a certain extent trying to come back to himself and his values and what he really believes in as a way to like cope with all of that but it ends up being so unhealthy and so toxic and something he never gets over throughout the rest of his life that unhealthy toxic way of being and thinking and preaching religion that like by the end i was so fucking done with him i hated him yeah that was really hard for me too. I think we've discussed a little bit before about how I have like a sexist thing where I I feel for the sad boys. And Marcus is really sad because he was Lauren's like he was Lauren's true brother. He was her ally growing up. And 
I wrote in my notes something about Lauren's initial privilege versus Marcus's. Because when Lauren, when all this happens to Lauren, she's like almost 18. She is 18. She's 18 when her her town catches on fire and she has to go out on her own. But Marcus is still a kid and he he initially finds people to help him be a kid. But once he's sold into sex slavery, I don't know. Lauren gets the chance to be almost our age, almost Maggie and my age, before she has to deal with any of the horrors that Marcus has had to deal with. And I think the fact that he is a guy too really affects him because women are, you know, trained to be sexualized their entire life. And he had his father as a role model and he had other male role models. And then he was physically like he was sexualized. And I think that must be incredibly traumatic. I I don't know. It just, it really, it bothered me that like, I understood initially why he couldn't be an acorn with Lauren. And I also want to know how you felt about like her sort of demasculating him. In public. And yeah. public. That yeah, because was... that's his big thing. But to me, it doesn't seem like that bad. But I guess given the context, it could be. See, that was the part where I thought he was being unreasonable. Not that he left. I got that. But I think that a difficulty and attention here, and I think a place where Marcus and Asha actually kind of like align to a certain extent, is that like, I think Marcus was extraordinarily ill-prepared for who his sister actually was. Because Lauren kept Earthseed a secret her entire life until everything happened. Marcus is rescued by Lauren and I think is initially grateful and is happy to have his sister back. But the more he actually learns of who she is and what she believes, I feel like there's probably a part of him that feels like he doesn't really understand anything anymore. And like, I, I could see how that's like a totally like, worldview shifting kind of you know about a person who you thought that you really knew well as a child who was your sibling who you were close to so like that part of it I really I got I empathized with that but for me also the part where I was where I started to be less sold on him is also the part that you mentioned where he like really freaked out about being allowed to preach and I think for me, it rubbed me the wrong way for two reasons. I could still empathize with him at this point, but I just disagreed with how he felt and how he reacted. The first being that he begged Lauren for weeks to be allowed to preach, like for ages. And she told him over and over and over again how things were done in Earthseed. And like the fact that she legitimately didn't think he was ready for that. She gave him a lot of good reasons as to why it was going to go poorly and yeah. it was only after he wore her down that she let him do it. So, like, he didn't want to be coddled at first, right? He wanted to just be allowed to do his thing and, like, do it well, essentially. And then when she allows him to do it, he's essentially mad that she allowed him to do it because she was right. Because she didn't coddle him at that point and just let him do his thing. And he got picked apart by the audience because that's how things work in Earthseed. You put things out and then there's like a community discussion about it. And that's mm -hmm. not how he's used to preaching. 
And I think for me, I was just very frustrated because it was like, you spend so many weeks being like, don't coddle me, don't coddle me. Like, (laughs) I want to do this. I need to do this. And then it's like, well, you're finally being allowed to do it. And then you're like, essentially, like, I needed to be coddled more. Like, I can't believe you let them do that to me. And it's like, I think to me, it just didn't feel like Lauren did it to him. Like, it demasculated him as much as he felt like it was, or at least from what I, the impression I got in the book. Because she did try and protect him from it for a long time. And she gave him a lot of like reasons why it was a bad fucking idea. And he pushed and pushed and pushed anyways. And then immediately whipped back around and was like, well, this is your fault. Yeah, but she did. She did admit that she did set him up to fail, which I don't know how I feel about that. But I think, okay, here's my issue with Marcus, because even before this, his whole like not knowing Lauren, I get that. But also it seems like I mean, they did they did grow up together. And Lauren, at least from our perspectives, having read what we've read of hers, like, even though she wasn't outwardly talking about Earthseed, she was never the stereotypical Christian woman that Marcus seems to think that she should be. And her interactions with her father, who were the who was the minister or the preacher, he didn't seem to be a proponent of the same things that Marcus seems to be a proponent of. Marcus seemed to take a different message from Christianity and from the way the world should be than Lauren did. And that's whatever. You know, they're different people. They're individuals. That's the way the world works. But it, like, bothered me that he didn't try to get to know Lauren. And the reason he failed wasn't because he wasn't a good preacher or even because they were picking him apart. It was because he refused to look at Earthseed and actually learn anything about it. He didn't, like, take the time to listen and see what was happening. And had he done that, he might have been more successful and converted more people to his cause. But he didn't because he didn't know what the fuck he was talking about because he was bothered by the fact that his sister was able to place herself in a position of power because in his worldview, women shouldn't be able to do that, especially not when he was placed in a position of such powerlessness. Yeah, I think that absolutely hits the nail on the head about what makes it so uncomfortable about Marcus that's never like explicitly addressed in this book is his use of religion and preaching as a mean of gaining power for himself, which his father didn't do. Like his father, his father was a very genuine seeming. Well, I mean, there's definitely like a certain level of which I think that being a religious leader of any kind is putting yourself (laughs) in a position of power. But like, for the most part, Marcus took it a lot farther than his father ever did. I think also like essentially like joining this weird Nazi party, like this Christian Brotherhood of America, right? He sold out what he supposedly actually believed in and at least was taught as a child just so that he could continue having that power and continue preaching and was uncomfortable with Lauren having the power and all of that. And he refuses to learn even what his party is about. Lauren tells him what happened to her, that this party, these people enslaved her and her her entire commune and other people and he just refuses to believe it and he never really believes it he'd rather think that she was dead because he refuses to like look the truth in the face and actually try and understand her or understand anything that could threaten his ability to have power yeah yeah it was really this was a complicated read for me i think because This book, more than the first book, I think deals really heavily with religion and I think personal relationships with religion. 
because you see such different relationships in, in people. Whereas the first book is really like more centered on Earthseed and just like Lauren developing it. And like, I, I think that for me, because I've never been a religious person and will likely never be a religious person, because I guess never say never. <laughs> I just don't, I have a really hard time getting and empathizing with the deeply personal held values that like Christianity holds for Marcus. It's not like I don't get it, right? Like I have plenty of friends who are religious, but because it's not an experience I have, I have to work really hard to empathize with that because that's just not where my ideas and my morals and and, and like any of my emotions come from as as a human. Mm-hmm. So to see Marcus sell out like that almost and be so willfully ignorant of his selling out in the name of almost like protecting this like religious belief that he has was like really a difficult pill for me to swallow as a reader. And like, I think turned me away from him really early in the novel. (laughs) Yeah. It's annoying to me because even though Lauren doesn't believe Christianity is the answer, she still is informed by all of the same values that her father essentially like planted into her. And Mm -hmm. she's used that to evolve, to evolve her values and be like, well, I think that we can take some of this. And then like, like she's, she's been educated by it. And I think the reason why Marcus is so attached to Christianity in general and the idea of being a preacher is because after his after his family died, he was able to find some sort of solace being a preacher and helping people. And like then that horrible thing happened to him where he was sold into sex slavery. And he's just trying to like regain that, regain that like feeling of safety and of purpose. And I have not been religious like most people have but I've always like been heavily spiritual I think in my life and like I like the feeling that faith gives I think that faith can be very positive for humanity if you utilize it in a way that is logical and makes sense I like different mythologies surrounding different religions and like find moral values from it and purpose from that so I just I don't know I think that like I think Marcus is very typical of a lot of people in that he's like, he's willing to read the text very literally and he just wants one thing. And I don't think it at all relates to Christianity because for the most part, my understanding of Christianity is that it's very against institutions for the most part. And it's very against hierarchy. It's like essentially socialism. It's the socialist religion, but whatever. (laughs) Yeah. I empathize with him and I can see where it comes from, but it's just unfair. And I wish Lauren herself had been a little harder on him, not at this point, but later on. Yeah. I think that also a balance is like, and something that I think that Butler talks about pretty well in this book is that like, sometimes people heal from trauma, like major trauma, like Marcus went through in unhealthy ways. And it's really difficult to as people who are around that person and supporting that person I think sometimes talk to them about the fact that like because you have experienced harm doesn't mean that you aren't perpetrating harm by how you're reacting to that Mm. and I feel like that's sort of getting at what you're getting at where it's like you're right at, at this early stage in the book that we're talking about right now like Lauren should not have brought it up to him. But like later in the book, she should have. 
she yeah. should have had that conversation with him. But it's a hard conversation to have with people because it's rooted in him, for him in so much pain and so many just like heinous things happening to him. And allowing him to continue along that very toxic path ultimately is what makes him a not very admirable character in the end, even though in many ways he's got his flock and he's got all everything he ever wanted. And like, he is in some ways probably helping people. I think for me also attention that I read while reading Marcus specifically is that <laughs> Harmony and I were joking about the fact that this book was really reminiscent of what was happening or that parable of the sours was really reminiscent of what was happening in the world. But like parable of the talents is really like Octavia Butler saw the future. <laughs> like literally <laughs> the phrase make America great again is the presidential slogan on page 20. Like that's how, yeah, that's how <laughs> literally she saw the future. So I think for me, it was also really hard to separate <laughs> Marcus and I think sort of that rebranding of religion as like, you know, this like Christian Brotherhood of America thing where it's mm -hmm. like religion is being really weaponized in this book. And I think in real life right now, real was real hard for me to like separate those things <laughs> as a reader. I mean, to be fair, this book was published in what, 93? Is that what we talked about? 1998 is when it's copyrighted. The first one was 93. Yeah. Okay. So this was 1998. And to be fair, maybe since the 70s, I'm not a student of history. So people feel free to come at me. But from what little I do know, religion has been heavily politicized in this similar way that is being politicized now. It just keeps getting worse and worse. Yeah. Not that it wasn't politicized in the past because religion has always been politicized, but like in this like, let's regulate women's bodies, let's go back to the ideal of time which, in which America was great and we had the nuclear family, things like that, that sort of like morality based off of economics and like the Republican Party's like pairing with religion and then like religious fanatics kind of taking over the Republican Party. That seems to have been a thing in America since like since the 70s ish where mm -hmm. there's been like that that junction. So her seeing the future because a lot of this hasn't happened in this way yet. Like we don't have religious camps. Uh, we don't have religious camps harming people but we do have things like ice going on where children are sold into sex slavery and it is like this is a weird book because it's very much on the precipice i feel as though where we could be and i know we talked about this very briefly last time but like this book almost entirely takes place in where i grew up as a child <laughs> and that was real freaky because we get into like very violent very traumatic stuff way more so than the the first book and because of where we are at as a nation right now, where like the system could collapse, where Donald Trump is constantly pushing at the system. And a lot of us are like, yes, please, we need the system to collapse because not that we're pro Donald Trump or anything, because like the system hasn't ever really benefited us. And we have the coronavirus going on. Like there's just a lot going on in this point where this sort of instability feels like it could end up in this direction. And it's also weird that this is happening because in this book, we get to a time in which the the world is becoming more stable, even when Jared is in power. Like we have the dreamscapes and things like that. Like there are less people on the roads, whereas before we had like kind of a lawless nation. 
like laws start being instituted again and the government starts making sense again until Jarrett screws it up because he starts a useless war and everyone's like, eh. Yeah, it's interesting too, though, because, and I'm sure that this is what you were getting to, but like, obviously his, you know, sort of power in that sense is only really benefiting the privilege, right? Because Mm -hmm. like, when it came to like a lot of people, Olamita and Earthseed, for example, like the reason that things were getting better was because pe- they did end up in like a religious concentration camp and they were just shoved mm-hmm. to the side. So they were cleaning up things with laws, quote unquote. But in reality, <laughs> I think in that case, like much like today, things seem like they're getting better, quote unquote, to the privileged few because heinous things are happening to those on the bottom of the of the privileged pole. Yeah. And I would argue, too, that we're maybe even a little bit closer to Sours because we haven't entered this state of, like, lawlessness yet. Yet, yeah. Yet, yeah. But, like, it feels as though it could happen at any moment. Yeah, for sure. Something I think that's also interesting about this book in comparison to Sours is that it also, suddenly the climate apocalypse is less pressing. And it's partially because they're not in, like, Southern Cali anymore, which is, I think, as we all know one of the places that is currently being hit very, very hard by climate change at the moment. Okay, just the like, I'm sorry to break up, but like even in Arcata Eureka area, it's being hit very, very hard. Like it's a much more browner landscape than it ever was even when I was growing up. I'm only 25. I left when I was 14. It's like much, much browner. It's much hotter. This place is supposed to be kind of like the Seattle area in terms of climate. And it's just not anymore. And they still have wildfires. I wasn't talking about real life. I was talking about in the book. Okay. Well, that's happening here too. (laughs) Yeah, but to a certain extent, but, but in the book, to a certain extent, the area that they're in is less pressed than the area that Lauren grows up in. So it is kind of interesting because the climate apocalypse takes a real big backseat in talents, whereas in Sour, because of where she was geographically in the book, it was, I think, a much more present issue that she was contending with all the time. But part of what makes that interesting to me is that also part of the reason that resources in that sense aren't as pressing for Earthseed is because they live in a commune style and they're being more successful and they're working cooperatively. Yeah. And it's extended past Earthseed, it sounds like too. Like people in general, it's mentioned somewhere in the book. I don't have the the exact page. Sorry, guys. But it's mentioned somewhere in the book that like people have started making their own gardens and farming and like fuel cars, as we saw in Sour 2, have been all like they they just don't exist anymore like they kind of exist here and there but it's just not a thing like people are more conscious about the resources that they're using because there aren't any yeah part of the part of the like big thing that earthseed was able to do at the beginning of this novel after so many years was they were able to get a truck and then buy a second truck which was like a huge deal and they were able to make a lot more money with it because they could go farther to farther their goods and their services etc etc but it's solar powered Yeah, it is. That's true. Um, But all of this is to say, like, I think there's, like, this subtle level of, like, going back to more, you know, like, give and take bartering economic systems and more cooperative economic systems is really sort of Butler's almost vision for, like, ways in which... Uh, the climate apocalypse becomes more survivable because that's also in stark contrast really to how the gated community Olamina lived in when she was growing up was they bartered and they traded within themselves for sure. 
but they all still very much lived as traditional and normal lives as they could within that gated community. And it's only when they gave all of that up and really started living together cooperatively. How many fucking times can I say that word? (laughs) that like things got better and resources were less scarce and they were more self-sufficient and water was less of a big deal and all of that good stuff. Part of it was because they moved upstate a little bit because I think in this book, you do see that like climate change is hitting there. But I think that if we're talking like what Harmony was saying, the reality of what all of California looks like right now versus the, the, the book kind of talking about the differences between Northern and Southern California I don't know that uh, that would necessarily be the way it worked in real life, I guess is what I'm saying. It is It is better there than it is in Southern California. I can say that. Like, it is still, I don't know if it's still technically a rainforest, but like, as soon as you go to the bay, it's still foggy. And that helps the fact that there's like clean water. The fact that the, there's rain really helps. Yeah, man, that rainforest life. Yeah, live in that rainforest life. Maggie's like, I know that. I live in Washington. <laughs> I live I live in the rainforest. Hello. <laughs> yeah, so that's interesting. I along those lines, in terms of like when the crazy Christian fanatics come, they ruin all of that though. They like they ruin everything that was in Acorn and that was sustainable and choose to like have these really unsustainable methods. And I was wondering what you thought of that because back in high school philosophy class, shout out to Mr. Pacheco and Mr. Doherty. We learned that the Christians thought that nature was evil because it could kill them, but also that like led to a lot of unsustainable practices because they were cool chopping down trees and stuff because it was all evil. Uh, and it was related to paganism, right? Like Christian, like the nature was evil because all the heathens had these like natural practices and worshipped like tree gods and shit. Wow, you know, that's <laughs> the first time I've ever heard that. But like, it may it makes sense to me. I really, I'll I've really some shut- more informative articles. <laughs> I really <laughs> shut the paraphrasing. Just all all things about religion out of my life. Yeah, I mean that sounds like it adds up to everything that's really happening in in that novel, like or in this novel, like the Christian Brotherhood comes in and something that I also found terrifying about it is that it's all of these men, right, who come in. But what you find out later is that it's like essentially these men who are almost like they're like doing their duty right at this place where they get to just like torture and rape all of these women primarily uh, and torture the men. Um, And then they get to just like go home to their wives and like live their pretty little lives and like it's like the kkk it's a secret organization yeah Yeah. and like they it's like supposed to be a duty that they do right but really they essentially just get to go to this like godless sex place where they get to do whatever the fuck they want to whoever the fuck they want damn the consequences for a couple of days they do their duty they feel good about themselves and they go back to their lives and it's really disgusting it really it really fucked me up, that section of the book. Yeah. If you know somebody who is a Christian and who thinks that any of that is okay or that, like, sexism or racism or rape or any of that shit is okay, get them a fucking Bible and read it to them because that is not what Jesus stood for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're right, though, that I, I've never heard that philosophy before, but it makes a lot of sense to me. And you're totally right, though, that like, they really do treat nature as if it's evil, right? I was reading that much more as like, if they just wanted like the most traditional values possible, right? Because that is one of their goals. But 
you're right in that that also relates to the fact that like the socialism aspect of it right like it's gotta go like the commune aspect but also like living off the land and all of that respecting the land like they killed it all yeah i just thought it was interesting too because it kind of pairs with the way that modern christian fanatics not every christian but like the people who are trying to politicize christianity in a way that harms others it it relates to that because a lot of people who have these same values also don't believe in things like climate change and they do tend to like in the u.s where maggie and i live as you guys know uh there is an interesting intersection between conservatism christianity and consumership like capitalism all three are interwined and all three of those values are really like brainwashed into our system. So like the idea of consuming and having that traditional lifestyle then paired with this like false version of Christian morality is how a lot of people live their lives. Like they think that if I get my traditional family and I get my traditional house and I get my big car, then I will have the American dream. And yeah. I, to do that, I need to work hard. That was interesting to me because they're, these books are based off, or like their their titles do come from Christian parables, as we discussed last time. And I think I wrote here, I was confused about what one of the parables meant. And I, I kind of had a problem with the first parable too. Page 10 and 11, we talk about the parable of the talents. So essentially, it's Lauren is talking about her father talking about the parable of the talents. And what happens is that like, Everyone gets some talents and like God gives people some talents, right? Then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same and made them another five talents. And likewise, that he that had received two, he also gained another two. But he that received one went out and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. My father was a great believer in education, hard work, and personal responsibility. Those are our talents, he would say, as my brother's eyes glazed over and even I tried not to sigh. God has given them to us and he'll judge us according to how we use them. The parable continues. To each of the two servants who had traded well and made profit for their Lord, the Lord said, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. But to the servant who had done nothing with his silver talent except bury it into the ground to keep it safe, the Lord said harsher words, Thou wicked and slothful servant, he began, and he ordered his men to take therefore the talent from him and give it unto him which hath ten talents, for unto every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have in abundance, but from him that hath shall not be taken away, even that which he hath. So this is weird to me, because Christianity my understanding is based off of people who are smarter than I is primarily like a socialist philosophy. And I could see how this would be a socialist philosophy, but the productivity and the sloth, it, it could be socialist because this guy is taking something and then hiding rather than giving to his community. The slothfulness and the productivity thing really gets to me though, because I feel like that is a heavily like capitalist ideal, this ideal idea of hardworking and because Especially in person- service of making profit for your lord. Yeah, exactly. So I'm like really confused about what this is saying and how Butler is using it and whether or not she's saying that like... And I do think Lauren kind of believes this. Lauren believes that she is a talent and therefore she must give it, right? Her talent is Earthseed and she has to give it to everybody. Which could be kind of like a socialist idea. 
but also like this idea that we only have worth if we are hardworking really in this modern day makes me uneasy. And so I just don't know how to read that. How do you read that, Maggie? <laughs> I was also really confused by it. I was, but I was confused about the parable of the sour too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought that I, I kind of like had the same tensions with it that you did, where it's like on the one hand, it's like, everyone's giving things to everyone else and like everyone does their part you know and it's like and if but if you're lazy and you don't do your part then you don't get anything um and it just felt very like i don't know i it made me feel gross it made me it because it because because i agree with you that like in our current society this whole like notion that you're only worth something if you're hardworking and productive and you only deserve things if you're profitable for others and blah 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 like it just feels very capitalist the second half does the first half feels very like clean up clean up everybody do your share you know like yeah which is different and i feel like like the idea of the earth seed commune as we originally see it i'm down with that that sounds so cool you know everyone's trading and bartering everyone like helps each other out you know, you all have like food and housing and education, right? The three, the three main things. Healthcare, you all have healthcare because they have bankle. It's like my ideal commune. But like people are talented at different things and they can do different things and they just kind of like naturally do it. Yeah, I think that's the difference, right? Is that no one is viewed as being unproductive because the standard of productivity is not I I was about to say standardized, but like, it's kind of true, right? Like what it means to be productive means that you are using whatever your talent is to help the community. And if you are disabled, which many of the characters in the commune are, you're still Mm -hmm. taken care of with the understanding that like, when you get your strength back, you'll figure out what your talent is too, and you'll go and do it. So like, I feel like that's the place where it's different from sort of what the parable is saying almost because the parable is talking about the fact that like everyone has talents, everyone has these two talents and then gives two talents and then like blah, 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 blah. Right. Like there's this like very standardized set of like how these talents spread. Whereas in reality, it's like, if we're looking at a real socialist community, it means that everybody does what they can given what, like who they are and what bandwidth they have essentially. And like, that's how you participate uh, it's not about productivity in the terms of profits. It's not about productivity in the terms of like, you get X amount done a week. It's about participating in a greater good mm. at no detriment to yourself, almost. Like, yeah. And I, and I feel like to a certain extent, that's where Earthseed starts to be. But then things are destroyed. So we don't get to see if like it actually got to stay that way. Yeah. And we only get hints about it from Asha. But to go back to my original point, because I got a little off track there. Sorry, guys. Maggie and I are not students of theology. So listeners, please email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com if you have thoughts about this. But I'm wondering if Christianity can support capitalism because of the idea of slothfulness being a sin. And I'm also wondering whether or not you guys think that that's a misreading on people who see that intersection, that intersection between like Christianity and capitalism, the intersection between capitalism being somehow godly that seems to play out in America, American politics at the very least. 
yeah, come at us and let me know your thoughts because I find it really, really fascinating. And it clearly, clearly there is that parallel within the Christian fanatics within this book that there is this idea of like wastefulness and consumption and conservatism somehow relating to Christianity. I would love to know your thoughts. Yeah, because clearly Harmony and I don't have any coherent ones. <laughs> <laughs> We're just not like, it. I, it's just hard because I'm just not educated enough. Yeah, I'm just, yeah, I'm not plugged in enough to have like real thoughts about it either. <laughs> I see something there, but I would love to like have the language to scratch at it deeper. <laughs> Same. What else do we want to talk about? There's a lot in this book. There's so much. There is. We're, I think we're already at almost like an hour 15, though, because we were recording for a hot sec before you disappeared earlier. Do you want to talk about sexuality? That was a big thing for me. Um, not a big thing, but it was something that I noticed in this book versus the other. And also, when we read Lilith Sprood, anything other than heterosexuality didn't appear until the last book. And that's the same within this series. And I just found that very fascinating. I want to know what you think that means about like Butler's take on sexuality. Because we see, we have at least two gay characters. We have Mercus, which I don't know, especially not as somebody who is a, like a gay man. I don't know if I can like even judge about it, but I also don't know how to feel about it because we know that at least at one point he was attracted to a girl. And then after his sexual abuse, it's suggested that he is now attracted to men. And I just don't, I don't know how to touch that. I don't know if that's problematic or not. <laughs> Yeah, like my gut feeling says it might be, but I, it's just like not my experience to talk about to like make that judgment call. Yeah. And then we have Allie, who I like, as soon as I learned that she was a carpenter, I was like, oh, yeah, she's definitely going to be a lesbian. And then I flip a few pages later and I was like, oh, yeah, she's a lesbian. Lesbian? Yeah. <laughs> and then like Lauren, even at some point, has some sort of like, she she presents herself as a man when she's on the road and she doesn't have a relationship that we know of with a woman, but she definitely thinks about it. It's like, I could, this would be so easy. Like I could see myself doing this. Yeah. So it's just very different from the first book. And I also think it's interesting because we have read Lilith's Brood and there's only a hint of like non-heterosexual relationships mentioned in the last book. So I wonder if we're seeing like Butler's evolution on, on sexuality or what i feel like that's probably like what's happening to a certain extent right because like the, those books were written what like a decade apart mm. and also at a time where you know in the 80s and stuff we're still really dealing with the, the after effects and everything of the aids crisis Whereas in the late 90s, there's there's more hope about that and therefore more acceptance of homosexuality in general. Not that I can say what Butler thinks about any of those things. I'm just like making some like sweeping statements about like general feelings about, <laughs> you know, homosexuality in general in the United States. Mm -hmm. I feel like, though, it does make sense, especially in the late 90s. And for an author who is generally pretty concerned with like having a very diverse cast of characters, like... Her mm -hmm. books and her characters are not one note at all, I no. would say. You've got somebody from every walk of life, and she does it really, really well. So I feel like it does make sense to me that, like, in this second book, we do get more LGBTQ characters. I will say that, like, I do think she falls into some 
potential stereotypes there you know like you, you were joking about like the alley is like being a carpenter thing and stuff <laughs> like they might not be the most original <laughs> lgbtq characters out there and like i i do think that marcus's sexuality could be read as being kind of problematic because like there aren't a lot of answers given which is fine to a certain extent but like the hints that are given about the fact that like being sexually abused by men makes him attracted to men like something about that doesn't sit right with me (laughs) i don't know if that's the case because it isn't explicitly stated that's just kind of like what i'm reading and also the fact that he chose to be a preacher and to like never act on it maybe has some correlation i don't know yeah it's hard to say too because it's also like when he liked that girl it was when he was a kid and like there's plenty Mm -hmm. of lgbtq people who you know live their lives as kids having like very heteronormative straight crushes because that's what you're expected and things like that but i will say that when i read it I also kind of picked up on that undertone a little bit and it did make me uncomfortable. So I don't think that you're like out in left field at the very least with that, but it is difficult because it isn't ever addressed. And on the one hand, it makes sense that it's not addressed because like as much as Marcus is a decent part of the book, he's not the main character and we get his perspective for a very, very little bit of it. And like, Mm -hmm it's not super relevant to the main story. But on the other hand, it's like, well, there's these weird hints flying around and I wish we could have just gotten a fucking answer one way or the other, you know, um, just for like the sake of the storytelling and understanding more of what like Butler was trying to do with bringing it up. Mm-hmm. Um, not because LGBTQ people should feel like pressured to make any sort of statement about who they are or their sexuality or anything. Um, I just feel like in this case, because there is like weird circumstances surrounding it, it, would have been um potentially more positive rep if we had dived into that a little bit more yeah I agree it's harder because we don't ever get it from his perspective the fact that he is gay we get it later from Asha and she says that he just hinted at it and that could be because he is such like he is so embedded in such a conservative religion my I don't know how to feel about the representation in this book like it's definitely I think it's better than what we got from Lilith's brood and Mm -hmm. then like I don't feel as though it's like super my place to like talk about this, but I, I still, it, it's different. It's different than like what we got and say like the witches of New York or like more modern versions in which we get LGBTQ characters. Because even in this book, even though our main character like has a consideration of it, which I think is really big. And she like explicitly states that like, there's nothing wrong with being gay. It's still underplayed, especially in comparison to all of the heterosexual relationships And that could be for a variety of reasons, like maybe Butler herself doesn't feel super comfortable talking about an experience that is so different from her own. I don't know. Yeah, I feel like we're just in this like weird place in this novel, but also in novels in general, where like people are really coming up against the fact that like, in order to have diverse and inclusive books, you have to talk about people whose experiences aren't your own. Hmm. But doing that can be difficult. And like, you see that a lot with, I think, especially right now talking about like race and publishing and like, who gets to tell what story and things like that. And how you do it. And how you do it. And like the fact that white authors should be having way more diverse cast of characters in books. But like, does that mean that white authors should be, you know, potentially doing like multiple POV books where one of the main characters is black? Like, can you talk about that experience? You know, probably not. But like, are there ways to do it well? And all of that. So for me, I think that the way she handles sexuality here just really kind of 
was reminiscent of all of these ongoing conversations in which like people don't always know how to talk about experiences that are really different from their own. And I think because of that, they end up falling on stereotypes, but like back on stereotypes. And I think a lot of authors try and do it in a way that's like not using like actively harmful stereotypes, right? Like again, the alley being a carpenter thing, right? But like it is still leaning on preconceived notions about mm. who people are and why rather than like unpacking that in those characters specific. So I think, again, another tension in this book, though, is that like, we're really just getting two points of view about it. And like, how do you talk about side characters in a re- like really meaningful in depth way that like respects and breaks down their identities positively? when they're side characters, you know, and you don't get their POV and they're actually not around very long. And like, that's not to call out this book specifically. I think that these are just like questions that float around the ether currently. And I don't know that Butler necessarily got it right here, but I also don't know she necessarily got it like 100% wrong either. No, I agree. And I definitely, I'm so like, it's nice to see this, especially because we did read Lilith's Brood, which was a book all about gender. And, like, did have a lot about sexuality in it, but not very much about homosexuality. Yeah, like, it was, like, 95% hetero. Yeah. Yeah. We had, like, one mention of homosexuality. Yeah. It's, it's just so nice to, like, read a book in which it is explicitly stated and it's, like, it's okay. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. because these are older-ish. Like, the 90s were, at this point, a long time ago. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, we're talking about 22 years ago now, right? Like, that, like, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I get you, though, that it is really nice to see, like, that growth and that sense of being, like, at the end of Lilith's Brood, we, like, get, we, it almost, it was almost like a little queer baby, if we're being honest about it, because it was just, like, sprinkled in there at the end. And then in this book, it is more explicitly, like, now we're gonna have LGBTQ characters, we're gonna reaffirm the fact that, like, it doesn't matter who you love, like, everything is good, and, like, we're gonna go from there. And I feel like maybe if this book was like, maybe if there were two more books to this series, that's probably something we would have explored more. But, like, in the constraints of this world, I do think to a certain extent the amount of attention it got does make sense. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Is there anything else you want to talk about that we really need to put put down? <sighs> I, not that we necessarily need to go in-depth about this by any means, but I will say that I had some interesting feelings about Bang Cole and Olamina's relationship at the beginning of the novel, specifically the way in which he consistently infantilizes his wife. And like, I- Girl! Oh my god, you had that too? Okay, sorry. Oh, you know, I was sitting there the entire time and I was like, what the fuck is this? Like, it was just really uncomfortable. And like, I get that he's a lot older than her. And in the first book, it really didn't seem like that big of a deal I was like okay like there's this there's like a huge age gap here but like he really respected Lauren like he clearly like they had such mutual respect and chemistry for each other and like it didn't seem like it was coming from a creepy way in any means that I like I made my peace with it by the end I was like okay huge age gap here whatever I get it like I kind of like it I'm into being cool as a character and then we start this book and he's just as soon as she has this baby like every single decision she makes is second-guessed by Bang Cole and by mm-hmm. her entire community to a certain extent. Well, kind of, though, but they also respect her as a leader. So they're like, yeah, you should do this because this is smart and what's best for your individual family. But they're also like, please don't leave. Yeah. I also just meant it in the sense, though, of, like, she she's trying to grow the community and lots of people start second-guessing her and whether, like, that's the right thing to do it and stuff. Oh, yeah. 
there was a lot of like tension between her and them um, throughout the beginning of the novel. But like with her and Bing Cole, like he just, he very much infantilizes her. He calls her girl like almost exclusively for most of it. And he just acts very like daddy knows best the entire time. And it was just very, I didn't like it. It made me feel really heebie-jeebie. And then I felt better after she finally sat him down and they had that like real ass conversation and Lauren was like, mm-hmm. you gotta stop doing this. Like, I'm not going to change my mind. I'm really serious about this. Like they, and they had a real conversation about it and Bing Cole respected her decision after that. But like, it just really bugged me. <laughs> this feels like really small beans, honestly, compared to all of the other huge things that happened throughout this novel, just because it, Bing Cole is alive for so little of this book. But like, it really threw me off. I think especially because it did seem like kind of not a total left turn, but like it didn't feel super congruent from the relationship that they had in Sours. And it's so to me, I think the five year time skip was or like the, the, the time skip was also a little bit jarring there because it was also like, whoa, how is this like how their relationship has grown in five years, you know, because they met when she was 18. And now she's 23. And it, it for me, it was just kind of like, whoa, like, I don't know what is happening here. But yeah, so Ben Cole gave me not great vibes in the beginning of this novel. And I didn't appreciate it. <laughs> No, I get that. I had that same feeling and I didn't write it down in my notes because there was just like so much else to talk about, but I did want to know what your reaction to it was. And I was like, maybe I'm just overreacting. Before this conversation, we had a conversation about how I sometimes pick the wrong hills to die on. And I was like, maybe that's just what this is. No, I think that's the right hill to die on. Their relationship got real funky at the beginning. Yeah, I don't think... Okay, here's the thing, though, that I disagree a little bit with about you. I don't think that it was super, like, I do think it was in line with what we saw in Sours. Because in Sours, while, like, he calls her, he's like, oh, my God, you're a child. And he does question her seed, and he never really believes in it. And she's okay with that. But that theme kind of is drawn out into this idea where he's, like, expecting her to give it up and then go be his wife and work as a teacher or whatever. Which is, like, not bad it's just that like he should have known her well enough at this point to know that that was never something she was going to do and she never lied to him about it like she was very upfront like this is the hill I'm dying on it's Earthseed. oh yeah for yeah. sure I think for me the place where it felt sort of like out of left field was that even though I totally agree with you like he felt all that stuff and did all of that stuff in Sours he did a lot better of a job at respecting her decisions and what she said in that book yeah. And it was, that was the change in this one where it was like he impregnated her and all of a sudden it was like, well, this is my kid too. So I get to make all the decisions almost. And it, that to me was like, whoa, I, yeah. I'm out <laughs> like zero out of 10 on that chief. Yeah, no, I get that. That's a deep seated fear of mine too. So that's why I was like unsure whether or not that was my hill to die on. <laughs> yeah, no, it was very, very odd. And like I said, the only thing that redeemed him was that like, they talked about it finally and he listened and it kind of wasn't a problem afterwards. Yeah, because he listened and then he respected her decision. But like he should have respected it from the first time she said no. Yeah. Yeah. And if he needed to discuss it more, like he should have discussed it more with her and like asked her those questions that led to that big discussion earlier. Yeah. And I kind of like this is another thing that like I wish Lauren and she's not perfect. So it's whatever. It's her husband who gives a shit like that's just 
she like really is very forgiving of him of that. And I would have been like, bitch, no, like we talked about this. This is the hill I'm dying on. You don't control me, asshole, which she kind of is, but she's like very nice to him about it. It's just kind of like, oh, here he goes again. And she's like cool with him calling her girl, which is also whatever. I guess if it's consensual, it's fine. But yeah, there was a lot of weirdness. Yeah. Yeah, I agree about that. It just like made me... I wasn't expecting to go into this novel disliking Bane Cole because I really <laughs> liked him in by the end of the first novel. Like I, I wasn't sure of him at first and then I was sold at him by the end and then and then it was like we almost started over where it was like we started this novel and I was like, What the fuck? I'm not I'm not sold on you again. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is rough too because like they were always clearly written to be endgame in that sense, right? I think we were expected to like Bane Cole to a certain extent because Lauren did but I agree with you that like to me that characterization where she sort of like rolled with it so much like didn't really drive with me or fit her I feel like yeah exactly like it just seemed very like you don't seem like the kind of person who would roll with this like it just really surprised me that the confrontation that they did have took so long because like I feel like for most people it would have happened real fast especially because they did generally have a pretty open communication like loving relationship where it felt it felt like to a certain extent like all of that just sort of happened to build up the tension and the trauma or like the drama and the first like in the first half of the book to like it it really made you think that the plot was going one way and then like took a hard turn and went a totally other way like it just felt like I was it felt like Butler was really leading me down like this is going to be a main conflict in this book Mm. and like this is where we're going and then that was not what we got at all yeah which like isn't a bad thing like it worked but looking back on it as a writing device in the whole novel I feel like it was way more for plot than for like actual character development and character decisions that make sense with what we know about either of them from the first book. Yeah, it was also there, I think, so that Asha could be like, oh, my father's a hero. My mom should have just listened to him. Yeah, it was just like a huge red herring that I don't know I necessarily liked a lot. Yeah, I agree. Okay, is there anything else? No, I think for me, that's like the main points of it. And also this episode's real long. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's okay. We we covered a lot. These books maybe we should have done in two episodes, which we'll keep in mind next time. Because <laughs> there's a lot here. Yeah. Was it a feminist book? What do you think? Oh, God. Okay, I was thinking about this earlier. So, I don't... I think yes, but not as much as I would like it to be, because at the end of the day, it's narrated by Asha, who I think really, it was narrated by Asha, who I think really chooses some non-feminist values. And yeah, I don't know. I think the fact that we get that is good. I think the fact that we like get to see all of this craziness and all of these ways and like all of these things that do happen to the woman in the book and all of that is good. And there is like general female solidarity and we're still following Lauren, who I really do strongly believe is a feminist figure. And I think that like other characters in the book are feminist figures. And I think it's important to have problematic feminist narratives because that's how people work, right? <laughs> like we we already have women who like police other women in this way. So I think yes, but not as much as like some of 
not as much as the other works that I have read by Butler are. Especially compared to Sour, because Sour was so focused on Lauren. It was so her story of like overcoming and like finding power in this really crazy world. I feel like if you excised just Lauren's story from Parable of the Talents, I'd be like, yeah, this is a feminist book. But I think that at best, this is a problematic feminist narrative, which like you were saying, isn't a bad thing, though, like, all of that is very realistic to how the world actually works. But I do think it was less feminist than Parable of the Sour. But for like good storytelling and useful other conversations that needed to happen within this world. So like, definitely not as feminist, but I think in the interest of talking about a broader variety of topics than we were able to in the first book. Yeah. So like, sort of feminist, I guess. (laughs) It's not like, it's not something I would recommend if somebody was like, oh, could you recommend me like a feminist book? Yeah. I would much more. Yeah. I would do Lilith's Brood and Dawn in particular, probably. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Do we have homework for this week? Oh, oh boy. Okay. I have been like, spending July kind of under a rock trying to like deal with myself and uh like my my personal shit and I really need to get back into like dealing with the rest of the world and all of the problems that are going on and so I need to start I need to start doing that more so that we don't end up like parable of the talent so I'm gonna work on instituting that practice back into my schedule what about you Maggie that is good homework you did have quite the July (laughs) I think that my homework for this week is gonna be, I don't know, man. It's not related to the book at all, but you know what? It's true. It's just going to be continuing to support uh, everything that's happening in Lebanon at the moment. Trying to think, because I've been really focused on the chaos of the United States, um, Mm. which I think is fair. But I also feel very invested about the idea of being a global citizen who cares about things that happen outside of the place where I'm immediately at. So even though it's not really related to like parable of the talents sort of homework, I'm uh, that, that's the homework for this week. Because that's just what I need to think about as a person this week. So you know what? Screw you, Butler. Be a more <laughs> global citizen too. Well, she is a global citizen. She can I be. Know. I think it could be related. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what I'm thinking about this week, though, as, as, as a person. Okay. All right. Uh, is there anything else? Oh, next week we are reading the second half of Red Clocks, Red Clocks by Lenny Zumas. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Which would be what pages? One one eighty six to the end. We also have to talk about what we're reading. No, because I think we read up to one eighty seven last time. The one eighty seven to the end. Okay, so like the the chapter after one eighty seven, because I think one eighty seven like ends the chapter, and then yeah, we get a very big tonal shift, I believe, yeah. in the next half. <laughs> wait we have to talk about what we're reading though oh yeah, yeah yeah what are we reading um what am i reading oh okay guys so for like the past few weeks actually because it's such a boring book so i finished i finished the harry potter series by the turf that must not be named and i'm listening to this podcast called twilight and quarantine by the hot and bothered girls which is one of my favorite podcasts and uh it's like really funny little 15 minute updates where they go through the entirety of the Twilight series and read chapter by chapter and like point out how horrible and awful it is. But this has inspired me to, now that I'm done with Harry Potter, to start audiobooking Twilight, which works really well because it's really boring. So it puts me to sleep. So I'm reading the first Twilight book. (laughs) I also finished Hood Feminists by Mickey Kay, I believe her name is. Let me double check. I want to read that so bad. 
Yeah, or maybe it's Hood Feminism. Let me see. Hood Feminism, yeah, by Mickey Kendall. Yeah, Hood Feminism, Notes from the Woman That a Movement Forgot by Mickey Kendall. I'd love to read it on the podcast sometime. It's just, it's amazing. She says that, like, she says in the beginning that she's going to be mean. And then she talks and it's like, this isn't mean. This is just truth. You're just, like, spitting truth everywhere. But whatever. (laughs) Um, And I think that's it. Oh, I'm I'm reading Red Clocks as well. Also true. Also, I can't believe you're reading Twilight. I think Midnight Sun just came out like three days ago or something. It's having a re- like it's having a revival in the uh, in the quarantine days, and I think oh. that's why Midnight Sun and because Midnight Sun is coming out. But it's, I know it's, it's like, hurting me. I know, I know. But it like it's also kind of like you know how you need a guilty pleasure. It like I don't I don't feel bad about it. You know what? It's fine. I don't feel bad about it. I'm a feminist. I know that it's problematic. It's funny, though, and I would like to revisit it as a grown-up. So fuck you, haters. Not Maggie, just haters in general. (laughs) That's real, and I think that that's totally fair, and I definitely have books like that for myself where it's like, I recognize that this is problematic, but I still get, like, a lot of joy out of it. I will say, though, if you are one of those people for, like, if Twilight's that book for you, make sure that you check out uh, the Quillowetch Tribe's actual website because they were not consulted about any of their participation in Twilight and they were really misrepresented. Um, so toss a few dollars their way because they're not getting anything off Midnight Sun and had a really rough time with the whole franchise. We will um, put that in our description just so that you can see it. Yeah, I didn't even think yeah. about that. Thank you, Maggie. You're welcome. Like I said, I think that like as long as you recognize that things are problematic, like like you were talking about, like I don't think there's any anything wrong with enjoying the guilty pleasure of Twilight. I just want to make sure that we're tossing dollars to the people who were like most harmed by it, you know, if we're gonna do that. Yeah, maybe some domestic abuse shelters too we'll we'll put in the descriptor. Yeah, that's a really good idea for sure. I am reading um Breasts and Eggs by Mieko Kawakami. Um Yeah. That's it. That's all I'm reading right now. It's taken me a really long time to get through, but not because it's bad. It's just one of those books where it's like you kind of just like pace through it and like stuff happens and you have to really think about it. Although I will say there is definitely some um, potentially transphobic undertones to the first half of the book that after I'm done with it, I definitely want to see some own voices reviews for before I go around like actually recommending it because it was enough to, you know, set off my cis, my cis red flag. So I want to make sure that I'm not out here like widely recommending something that's potentially transphobic. So I just want to put that little like asterisk on there as I'm talking about it. We'll put that in our episode description too, if I remember. Asterix may be transphobic. Yeah. All right. That's it. That's the episode. Goodbye, everyone. Talk to you next week. Bye. Remember Red Clocks, the chapter that happens after 187. Bye. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash rgbc and clicking the support to this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to medium.com slash rebel-girls-book-club and clicking read along. You can follow us at RGBC Pod on Instagram at Rebel Girls Book Club, on Facebook at Rebel Girls Book One, on Twitter 
and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.